0: Hello, everybody. Let me see if I can get the hair off my microphone. All right, and then I won't mess with it, because Dad doesn't like that. Um, <clears throat> wow, God has something so powerful to say about this, because I didn't ask Monica what she was speaking about, and I thought, you know, what are the odds we're going to talk about the same Scripture? But we are. We are opening with the same passage, but I'll start with a, just a little um, introduction. Uh, Dad asked me to speak here only like two weeks ago because somebody else dropped out, and I was not in a good place, and I, was, I said, yeah, because I felt bad for him because it's hard to fill a slot so late, and then I said, but if you find someone else, please give give the opportunity to somebody else, and he wrote right back, he said, no, I think it's the Lord, and, and I thought, oh, shoot, um, um, but I uh, am the mother of twins, twin toddlers, and one keeps me busy on earth, and one is in heaven since January, and he keeps me busy with grief, and so... I did not think that I could do it, and I still don't know if I can, so we're going to start with prayer. Mighty God, this world is suffering and groaning and has fallen so, so far from your plan and your goodness and your ways. But you are still speaking, and you still offer the tree of life. You reinstated it with Jesus. There is a tree we can go to to be fed. And I said you would hide me behind the cross, and that you give me the strength to share this message, because you didn't give me an option. And I thank you that you're here. All right, so when he wrote back and said, well, I think it's the Lord, I said, okay, well, what am I even going to speak about? And I looked through my speaking journal, and I found my notes from the last time I spoke here, which was in 2016, <clears throat> and I spoke about, that's good, this is going to be important. And last time, I read over my notes, and they were powerful notes, and I talked about Martha and Mary and Lazarus, and when I got to the name Lazarus, I just started weeping, I was like, well, I can't speak about this anymore because my baby wasn't resurrected. So is there a story of a woman whose son died? And there are a few, but Eve immediately came to mind. Eve, you know, of Adam and Eve. And I thought, well, there's, I don't think there's that much to say. If there's nothing about Eve to say, then I'll just tell Dad I can't do it. But I read the story, and it turns out there was something to say. So here I am trying to say it. Um, So I think Eve can offer us insight into our need for intimacy with God. Um, She knew intimacy, and then she lost it, and we can learn some things from her. So um, let's go to the, we'll skip the first slide and just go to the passage. So the first point one is intimacy lost. And the passage is very familiar to us. And since I also only have a half an hour, and the first time I preached this, it was 50 minutes, I'm not going to read it. But I want you to notice that here, I put the names. This is called the Names of God translation. Instead of saying God or the Lord, they put the name that was in Hebrew there. So the snake is here, and he was more clever than all the wild animals Yahweh Elohim had made. And just like the tempter, the tester in the wilderness, he puts this seed of doubt in the question, did Elohim really say that you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? So he frames this question as an accusation, and Eve is, kind of pushes back, but not all the way. He's like, yeah, we can eat from the tree, but she's still standing there by the forbidden tree, and she exaggerates what God said. He said, you know, not even to touch it, which he didn't say, so she misrepresents what God says. Then the the snake comes back with an accusation and a contradiction of God. You certainly will not die. Elohim knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open. He offers this alternative explanation of the facts like, yeah, God did say that, but it's only because he was trying to withhold from you, it's because he didn't want you to have these things. And then as Monica so eloquently talked about, she saw that the fruit was good to eat, nice to look at, desirable for making someone wise, so she took it, gave it to her husband. And then when God came, and the name there is Yahweh Elohim, they heard Yahweh Elohim walking in the garden, so they hid from Yahweh Elohim among the trees in the garden. And so, we'll start by... How the intimacy was lost. The the title of the message, which I forgot to say, is After the Fall. But we'll talk just quickly about the fall and then focus on what happened after. I I see in these seven verses at least seven mistakes that Eve made that are incredibly common mistakes that we all do that push us away from God. So here they are quickly. She draws near to the forbidden thing. Instead of exploring all this wide, wonderful garden or hanging up by the tree of life, she's right there looking at the thing she can't have, pushing the boundary. Then she enters into a conversation with an accuser. He opens the conversation with a question accusing God, and she kind of enters into it. And then when he... Uh, contradicts God, she starts to wonder if that is really true. Is this really the real explanation? You know, is God really trying to withhold? Is he, is this really a reasonable boundary? Or is he uh, petty that he shouldn't even touch it, that we shouldn't even touch this fruit? She, number three, misquotes God, misrepresents his command, either because she had it secondhand from Adam or because after Adam told her, she twisted it in her own mind. We, I think we all <clears throat> are very susceptible to doing this, to hearing something from somebody else about God and using that as evidence that maybe God's not really good or maybe God's wrong or maybe he didn't really mean that. And in the world, there are so many of those kinds of Accusations floating around all the time. You know, does that really mean that? Is God really good? If God were good, how could this happen? All on and on and on. And then the fourth thing, she talks herself into taking this fruit from this tree by self-justifying. Well, it's good for food. I need food, like Monica said. This is a natural desire. I'm hungry right now, so why shouldn't I eat it? It's desirable to the... It's beautiful to the eyes. I'm attracted to it. It looks like something good. Why would God make it beautiful if he didn't want me to have it? God knows that I would want it because he made it like this. He made me like this. So therefore I should have it. It's desirable for wisdom. That's a good thing. So why can't I take this? And so often we talk ourselves into the wrong path in just like this, in just these little steps like, well, really, if you really think about it, I should do it because it is good and this is a legitimate need because all sins are, we are grasping to fill legitimate needs and so why shouldn't I? If it makes me feel good, then it should be, it's the right thing for me. Um, And then we make our decisions. Then she promotes her sin to others it's the, one of the easiest ways to continue justifying ourselves is by convincing other people that we were right and that we did the right thing. And how can we convince them? By convincing them to do it as well. I think morality is, by nature, universal. It's based on God. It's based on his character. It's based on his boundaries. And every time we depart from that and start building our own morality, we want to make it universal too. And we see this everywhere. Not only is this right for me, this is right and this is right for you and you have to accept this because the more people we can get to accept our version of morality, the more we can convince ourselves that we really are okay, and we really are good because we all want to feel like good people, we all want to feel righteous, and so if we can promote our sin to other people, we can hide that niggling voice in our head that's like, maybe this wasn't the best, maybe this was wrong, and we want to ignore that so much, so we broadcast our version, we promote it to other people, then we hide from God as Adam and Eve do they eat it, they realize they're naked, they feel, they hide because maybe they're still feeling like, yeah, well, I, I should eat it, but it was God that told me not to, and if, you know, we talk to it, and then we're gonna have to talk about it, and don't really want to talk about it, so I'm avoiding this conflict, hiding from God. How often do we do this with, not just with God, but with other people? Well, yeah, we're in disagreement, so now I'm just gonna distance myself from you so that we don't have to expose this and then when god finds them anyway they shift blame which is our just classic humanity we we try and hide our shame from our very selves well you know god says adam did you eat the fruit he's like well this woman that you gave me gave it to me and so not only is he blaming her just throwing her under the bus uh, he's blaming God. Well, if you don't want me to eat it, you shouldn't give me this woman because it's her fault. So then he asks him, asks her, and she says, well, I was deceived. You know, I was tricked. I don't, I'm not responsible. It was this snake. <clears throat> and so those are seven ways that we can lose intimacy with God and that we often do. We talk ourselves into a different worldview almost and push God to the side, so that we can feel righteous and we can feel um, good about ourselves. And so, well, now we'll get into the meat of after the fall, what happened. So that's how she, how they both fell. But we're focusing on Eve. And now, point two: intimacy abandoned. Um, I grew, or intimacy forgotten. Yeah. I grew up in the church, and I've not really ever spent time thinking about Eve after the fall. I kind of assumed that Adam and Eve were repentant right then, probably because in like the kids' Bibles in the scene where they're getting out of the garden they are always like crying and then walking away and um (laughs) but there's actually nothing in the text that says that they were sorry right then and just at the end Monica um mentioned the imagination the, the temptations of the imagination um and since um my baby passed away God has been challenging me about my imagination because there's two ways to use your imagination. You can imagine things that aren't real or you can imagine things that are real. And I think it's, we have it, an imagination in order to imagine things that are real because how else could we fix our eyes on things unseen? God wants us to explore the heavens and the spiritual realms and his truth with our imaginations. But so much of the time, we don't do that. But in my process of grieving, I have had this stark choice. If you can imagine things that are not and be consumed by despair. Or you can imagine things that are and we can keep walking. So, I turned my imagination to this story. All that Eve, all that we have of Eve here is she has a baby, she says one sentence, we see a little information about that baby. Then she has another baby, she says one sentence, and then we see a little bit about that baby. But there is something there. So imagine with me that you have been kicked out of the Garden of Eden after this little process of self-justifying and blame-shifting and God... So you lived in this beautiful place that was cool, that had all the food you needed. You lived in perfect harmony with your husband. You, All the animals were in harmony. You had plenty to, to do and work to do, but it was beautiful. God was with you. He spoke to you. and um, And now you have been... Forbidden to enter that place, and now your life is way harder. Animal, you have to kind of kill animals to eat them. Sometimes it's super messy. Sometimes they kill each other. It's disturbing. Your relationship with your husband has become a lot worse because you know he betrayed you in front of God, and and he's complaining all the time now because he has to work the land, and the food is worse, and the temperature is worse. It's so hot. All these things. <laughs> And I think that Adam and Eve, but mostly Eve, probably didn't have a great attitude about this little shift um, because I can just, if it were me, I can hear her every day in her newly difficult and uncomfortable life being like, ah, can't believe this. I only had a one bite of this fruit, and it's not even really my fault. And it was so beautiful, and I just oh, can't believe this. This is so mean of God to put us out here, and everything hurts. And, and then she got pregnant, which is a totally new experience. I'm sure she was like, what is happening to me? Why do I feel sick all the time? I don't want to eat any of this food or any food that I've ever even imagined. And it's very painful, very strange strange. First I'm sick, then I'm fat, then I have to push a baby out. It hurts so much. And so she is taken from perfection to great discomfort and distress, okay? And so what does she say after she has this first baby? She said, this is the sentence, um, I think we have it here, Genesis 4, one. Okay. She gave birth to Cain and she said, I have gotten the man that Yahweh promised. Now I read this verse in a lot of translations, and it's kind of uh it's kind of confusing. So the Hebrew words are I got a man from Yahweh. And it, it has that name of the Lord right there. And so it doesn't have the words for help or the words for promise or anything like that. The confusing word in the translation is from, uh, the I have got a man from Yahweh. From could also mean with, and so I think some translators are like, well, if I got a man with Yahweh, then maybe that means with his help, or if I got the man with that Yahweh talked about, Something, so they add little words here and there, but the basic thing is just I have gotten a man from Yahweh, and so first right off right on the face of it it's like it's about what she did she's the subject I got a man from Yahweh, and if that was a first experience of pain in the first delivery, uh, I'm sure she was feeling kind of victorious and is saying like, Wow, I did it I got a man out of me from Yahweh, even though it was painful. I got him despite that curse of pain that Yahweh gave me. And so it's interesting the word gotten is also mostly translated bought or purchased. Like I got a field. I bought a field. That's like a transactional word. I earned it and now I possess it because I did something like that. And Cain's name, that word is Kana, and Cain's name comes from that, Kain. And it means gotten, in like a transactional way. And I feel like she was saying, ha, I did it anyway, even though it was really hard. And this is my baby, and now I have a baby. And the reason, whole reason we use the names of God translation is to notice that this is the first time Yahweh is used by itself in the Bible. Um, In all the previous chapters, God is either called Elohim, which is the mighty one, or Yahweh Elohim, which is, Yahweh is like the proper name for God that's only applied to the one true God, but it was always Yahweh, the one true intimate God, Elohim, the mighty one. And here she says, uh, just Yahweh. She drops the mighty one, the the part that emphasizes his power and might. <clears throat> and I think there might have been a kind of a lessening in her life of the fear of the Lord because she had this chip on her shoulder like, He was unjust to me. He kicked me out of the garden for something that wasn't even really my fault. That was like totally understandable that I would do that. And now I have all this whole painful life. So she has retreated from reverence. I think it's possible that Eve exchanged intimacy with God for intimacy with her children. She had won them despite God's meanness to her and now they were hers. Perhaps she began building her own garden, where she didn't need God so much. And she just wanted to make her own happy life without reference to him so much. And if you are Cain and Abel, and that's your mom's attitude, you might kind of understand theology to be something like, God is mean if you displease him. He's real, he created everything, but yeah, you kind of got to toe the line. And if that was a theology that she was kind of emanating, whether or not she said it out loud, it kind of makes sense that Cain, in chapter 4, was very quick to be offended by God. Uh, He brings an offering, Abel brings an offering, the Lord accepts Abel's offering, he doesn't accept Cain's, and Cain is enraged and downcast, like, What? How dare you not accept my offering? I did what I was supposed to do. I scraped together these vegetables and I offered them to you, and that's what my morality said I had to do to please you. And now you're not pleased. How? uh, That's not my fault. That's your fault. And the Lord confronts him gently. He says, Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Um, saying, no, you can do well, but you just did it right there. But I I actually have a different standard, and if you want to learn about my standard, I would be so happy to have you. I'd be so happy to accept you. Uh, But Cain just pushes that away. He already did what was right in his own eyes, and so he embraces rage, he embraces envy, and he becomes a murderer, the first murderer. So, we're not going to talk about Cain, but you can read more about that. But let's talk about what happened to Adam and Eve now, on this day. Because I think that this was the real fall. Um, God had said, if you eat this fruit, you'll die. But they didn't die that day, and they didn't experience death that day. All that they happened on that day was they started down the path that led to death. And today is the day that they saw what that means. And so, if you imagine Eve finding her son dead in the field with a wound on his head, and his spirit is gone. And she must have been reeling, just reeling now this is the first human being to die and the first person is not one of them but it's their son their innocent and beloved son and they have to now grapple with the finality of death they are never going to see him again they'll never talk to him again they'll never hold him again And they will never be whole again. And their family will never be whole again. And Eve must have said, Oh my, this is what you meant when you said die. I didn't understand. now I understand. And it's not even just that, it's not even just that he was dead, because it wasn't an accident. They had to grapple with the brutality of it, that their son was dead forever because their other son had killed him on purpose because he was consumed with rage and envy. And now the other son is also exiled forever from their sight. So on this day they lose one son to tragedy and one son to evil. And there they have nothing left. This must have been the day that Eve realized what the fall meant and how serious it was. And I believe she changed. She said, I just hear her thinking, is this what you meant when you said evil? Is this what we chose when we disobeyed you? I didn't know. I didn't know it would be this bad. I didn't know it would be this painful. I thought it was like, apples and oranges, you know, apples on the tree of life, oranges on the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't a big deal, but it is, it is a big deal. And I don't know how to go forward. I don't know what's good. And she realizes I'm not wise. I'm not strong because I don't know how to deal with this. I was in paradise and now I'm in hell. This devastation and sorrow was finally enough to shake her self-reliance and her self-confidence and all her excuses and all her self-justification and all her own righteousness. And she would have had nothing left. Her whole life that she had built outside of the garden was just gone and gone for good and gone in sorrow and darkness And so what did she have? She must have begun to remember the garden. She had lived half her life in paradise. And now she really understood what hell was. And now she was probably like, oh, Lord, are you still there? This isn't how it was before. This isn't how it was in the garden. Oh, Yahweh, Elohim, this isn't how it was supposed to be, was it? This isn't what you wanted for me, was it? Is there a way to go back? Is there a way to try it again? Is there a way to walk with you again? And this is the mercy of suffering. Because in suffering, God sends us an invitation, two invitations that are two sides of the same coin, really. But number one, he wants doubt about his character and confidence in our own to be replaced with the certainty that there is no other way. That all the world has to offer is Nothing is done. All that we can build in our own might and strength is worthless. And that the only way to any good that lasts, any joy, any peace, it'll come from him. Because he's the source of those things. So he wants us to trust his character again. Trust that he wants to give you life. Trust that he knows the way, that it's a better way. And so, number two, the same thing, the outgrowth of that, is that our efforts to build our own kingdom apart from him, that just have a little bit of him, but maybe not a lot, would be replaced with desperation to enter his. Look, there's nowhere else I can be. I can't even be out there in the world without you because it's so painful and it's so dark and it's so full of lies and it's so brutal. I don't want to live anywhere except with you. And why do I think this shift happened? I think so because what she said when Seth was born and the testimony of Seth. So when Seth was born, she says, in Genesis 4:25, she gave birth to a son and named him Seth because she said, "Elohim has given me another child in place of Abel." When Cain was born, she said, "I got a man from the Lord." Ha. And when Seth was born, she said, "Elohim, the mighty God, has given me a gift of another son that I didn't deserve." And his name means "given." Cain's name means gotten, and Seth's name means given. And she told him a different story. And I bet she didn't tell him about how mean God was for kicking him out of the garden. I bet she told him about the garden and what it was like before. The worshiping team can come up, please. I wrote some more lyrics about the garden, calling it Eve's song, to what maybe she told Seth. And I know that she told him something different because in verse 26, we only have a tiny little verse about Seth. It says, a son was also born to Seth, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to worship Yahweh, or literally to call on the name of Yahweh. They began to seek intimacy again. They were not just scraping together offerings. No, they wanted to know the one true God, the intimate God. And, friends, I promise you, there is a way back to the way it was, to the good things, because Jesus made that way so that we don't have to have our own righteousness. We don't have to build our own system. We don't have to convince other people to think the way we think. We can come to him. Jesus brings us back to the Father, and we can accept the righteousness that Jesus won when he passed the test. He'll give it to you, and he'll walk with you again. So as the worship team sings Eve's song and then continues to sing, I encourage you all to come to the altar, either right in your seats or at a social distance apart from each other up here, and Let go of all your own excuses, all your own kingdoms, all your own morality, all your own fruit that you wanted, and come into the garden of the Father.